God's plan for marriage, threatened by divorce and remarriage, is the topic that we have here. And just coming off of the conversation and trying to transition here to a topic like this, I just sense a, a weightiness, and it, this is just a heart-wrenching topic. And uh, may God break our hearts for the souls that this touches. So why this topic? <clears throat> well, America has one of the highest divorce rates in the world. It's been calculated that every 13 seconds, there's a divorce in America. So since we've gathered this morning, that's about 1,385 divorces in America. And it's been observed that 80% of divorces will end up in remarriage. That said, with all the various challenges that we face as apostolics, why spend time on this topic? We tend to have strong marriages, and the percentage of divorce and remarriage cases are relatively low. Well, we could simply say it's the next teaching in the But I Say Unto You series that we've been looking at. This is the next one here, found in the Sermon on the Mount. Clear back in the beginning, God designed the one flesh union. This is a covenant. Malachi states that he hates divorce. In Malachi 2, we can read in uh, verses 14 and 16, Jesus taught clearly against divorce and remarriage. And we as apostolics do not have sound unified teaching on this subject. There are souls in our fellowships for which this has eternal ramifications. And I believe that we all have either family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers who find themselves in this situation, and they deserve clear and compassionate teaching. About 16 years ago or so, I was sitting at, in my in-law's home having a conversation with my father-in-law. And this subject came up. I, I can't tell you how in context it did, but it, it did. It came up when we were discussing it. And he had a conviction on it, and so did I. And we were coming at it from two opposite ends of the table. And I could not understand how the God that I serve would ask this of somebody. I held a completely opposite view than what I have today. We disagreed, and it was probably the first disagreement I ever had with my father-in-law, or maybe a year married, and that was hard, but I just, I couldn't see it, nor did I want to. That morning, we went to church, and there was a service that morning on this topic specifically, in complete opposition to where I stood. I've never heard this topic in our circles before or after spoken like that. That was the beginning of my journey, trying to understand this, this particular doctrine, this teaching. And I find that ever since then, for, for me and whoever I talk to about this in the years that have gone by, we continue to see Satan coming, saying, Yea, hath God said. Hath he really said? So maybe this is the first time you're hearing this teaching. Maybe it's been explained to you differently. But similar to when we read the book of Romans, we have this tendency 
to read it through Calvinist lenses, just because it's pretty common, popular. And when we have those filters on our eyes when we read the book of Romans, we tend to struggle with scriptures. We just can hardly get past these verses. But if we were to just read it without that filter, it becomes clear. And I think this topic is similar. And, and we will try to do that here as we move on to bring some clarity to this if there's any confusion and to give some validity to what Jesus said here um, in Matthew 5, verses 31, 32 and, and other supporting scriptures as we go on. Although this is a hard topic, it doesn't need to be shared with a hard heart. My hope is not to do that now. My hope in prayer is that if we come in conversation with those that find themselves in this situation or even contemplating a remarriage, be so gentle. Um, as I've heard this topic, sometimes this is one that just gets blasted from the pulpits or sometimes it's, you're wrong, maybe. But just remember who this touches. I mean, you've got real people. They're real families, real children, church families, the impression of neighbors and coworkers, and they're looking. The world is watching. But more importantly than that, God is. And so somehow we need to be able to communicate this in an effective way that reaches and touches the hearts of those with whom we, we speak. I've heard the testimonies of those that have come from complex situations. And God has given balm for wounded hearts and grace to be victorious. Recently I heard a recording of some sharing their testimonies going through the realization that they were in adultery and how God gave them strength to carry them through. Brothers, it, it was so moving that as I was listening to it, I had to pause the recording and, and just allow the emotions to kind of pass through before I could continue on. The faith that some of these have had and their supportive congregations where this was upheld was inspiring. So may we pray that we go past the words of the matter and go straight to the heart of it. So due to the sensitivity here, um, I would ask that uh, Brother Joel, would you be willing um, to, to lead us here in prayer? Let's, let's rise and, and have a prayer specifically on behalf of anyone who might struggle. I this, but I did not prepare a prayer.
hearts that it touches. We pray for those who <coughs> were divorced and, and, and will never marry, potentially. And, and the, the self-denial, the self-sacrifice that entails. Father, we pray for those couples that find themselves in a situation where they've been divorced and remarried and, and trying to work through what does this mean? What would Jesus be calling? Father, we pray for those that have been divorced and remarried and have, have chosen to, to separate. We ask that thou hast help them uphold their commitment and faith to, to seek to obey thee. Father, we pray for the children that are affected. The burdens and the hurts is our prayer that thou wouldst minister grace and comfort. We pray for thy people who are called to help bear burdens. If there's ever a time when we bear one another's burdens, it will be a time like thou art uh, teaching us in thy words. So we, we give it all to thee. We do it in the name of Jesus. Thank you, brothers. <clears throat> so before we get to the main text here, Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, let's first go back to the beginning. Let's, let's discuss marriage. Thankful for the brothers who discussed anger and reconciliation and then lust. They're certainly closely tied in here to this topic. But let's discuss the beauty of marriage. This is what's at hand. God had a vision for marriage. And we are not to mess with it. And what it represents is something so holy and precious, as we'll see. I'm going to go to Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6 first. I'll read these here. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What God therefore hath joined together, let not man put asunder. A couple of things to notice here is the framework of the question, divorce for every cause. Let's take a look at what the Pharisees were referencing here. Um, their question was taken from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 2. I'll read that. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go, and be another man's wife. So the Pharisees went back to Moses, but Jesus went back to God. And so the question is, whose teaching will we go back to? So what makes a marriage? A traditional church ceremony? I appreciate that. You know, I have to say, when Ruth and I first came, we were actually in Tremont, was our first Sunday on the American side, we, we visited there and there was a wedding, Ruth's friend's wedding. And it's the first time I've seen the practice that was done in these circles and it I, brought me to tears immediately. It was just beautiful. I've never seen something like that before. It was just really touched my heart. But does that make the marriage? When in the ceremony do you officially become married? 
How about signing papers at a courthouse? Is that, is that a marriage? How about a fly-by-night Las Vegas wedding? Um, common law, after so many years, consummation. Some of these are really difficult questions. We'll, we'll, get, we'll shed some light on some of this here going forward. But let's look at Genesis 2.24. Go back further yet. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So God designed marriage from the beginning and he makes the joining of two a marriage. Therefore God hath joined together. We read, let not man put asunder. And they are no more twain. We read in Matthew 19.6 also. God's math is one plus one equals one. And it's not how we might think that sometimes. They're no more twain. Ephesians 5.30-31 For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This language should remind us of what we read there in Genesis. Of his flesh, of his bones, one flesh. In Hebrews 13.4, we read that marriage is honorable in all. And so we, we appreciate faith marriages, don't we? And, and we, we probably, a number of us could go around this room and share just beautiful testimonies of that. We have examples in the Bible of, of different kinds of marriages, a husband and wife. We, we read things like Isaac and Rebekah. We read Ahab and Jezebel, still a husband and wife. We read about Jesus performing uh, his first miracle there was going to a marriage feast. There was some kind of wedding there. We also read about Pilate and his wife. What I'm saying is there are just different kinds of, of weddings, marriages, but they're still husband and wife, even if it wasn't, as we understand, in faith. Marriage is not merely consummation. Something else is going on there. We can remember Solomon. There's a difference between wives and concubines. So clearly, um, we can't just conclude that consummation makes the marriage. And in Exodus 22.16, there's something interesting there. If you lie with a woman who isn't yours, you need to then endow her to be your wife. Um, so being married and becoming married is, is something greater and more. It, it, it's not fornication. That's different. Um, but God makes this marriage. It's also not merely some kind of my rights, your rights contract as evidenced by the prenuptial, prenuptial agreements that we have in our day. Marriage is a covenant. It is relationship-based. Ephesians 5.32 says, This is a great mystery that I speak concerning Christ and the church. The covenant of marriage is so holy that it was used to illustrate Christ and the church. So is there a greater covenant that can be made than being joined to Christ? Genesis 1 and 2, we read he created male and female, one flesh. The picture of Christ and the church was there as it was given to us here in Ephesians. So let's take a look now 
at Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. I'm going to start in Mark chapter 10 and verses 2 through 12. If one of you brothers would find that and be willing to read that. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. Go ahead. Yeah. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh, so then they, so then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Thank you, brother. So, this is a relatively clear passage. Difficult, but clear. We notice here that the twain shall be one, and that they are no more twain but one. Again, this math, one plus one equals one. We notice how the disciples asked him again in verse 10 there in that scripture. If you notice, they asked him again, why? He was clearly teaching something that was a little hard to understand or, or difficult to swallow or needed to qualify, quantify, clarify. <clears throat> so he's saying that remarriage is adultery. Let's turn to Luke 16. Um, verse 18, if one of your brothers could find that and read it as well. Luke 6, 18, 16. 16. 16. <coughs> I'll read that. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Okay. Pretty straightforward. One verse here. Um, the context of this verse, it, it nearly stands alone. It's kind of interesting if you look at where it's placed. Um, but again, pretty clear teaching. So there are other scriptures we want to look at, and something that's known as the exception clause. We'll get into that a little bit. But before that, I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about the all things become new. Um, I hear that in our circles uh, frequently. All things become new. We can find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. <clears throat> if one of your brothers would read that for me, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Just whoever has that. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, before all things are become new. Okay, thank you. 
So this is relatively straightforward. Here all things become new, and so this is applied to any divorce that's happened before conversion, as I, as I hear it. I guess the question is, do all things become new in the way that we see them? What's, what's becoming new here? This is speaking to a spiritual rebirth, the new man. Our old man is crucified with him, we read in Romans 6.6. 6. But again, do all things become new? Let's look at Onesimus in Philemon. He was a slave before and he was a slave after. So in that sense, he still had to hold to that. If two are not married in, in the faith, I know this happens with some frequency. When they become baptized, do we divorce them? Because it wasn't in faith. Well, we would, we would certainly say no. Um, actually, in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, we don't need to turn to that, but this speaks to a circumstance where one of the spouses is unconverted. So it's not like conversion frees you of that marriage. She's still your wife. He's still your husband, even though the eternal destination would differ between the two of you at that time. The word adultery does not change its meaning when one becomes converted. <clears throat> After conversion, parents don't become ex-parents. Children don't become ex-children. Wives don't become ex-wives. An analogy that, that came to me if I buy a car that I didn't know was stolen before conversion, I keep it through my conversion, I keep it for years after my conversion, still not my car. It's not like the sin of theft is forgiven somehow if the car was stolen. And we need to remember this radical teaching we just learned from Jesus about this amputation. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. And this should strike fear in our hearts. And, and as I mentioned in the beginning, my heart just breaks for those that would find themselves in the situation. But life is too short and eternity too long to get this wrong. So let's take a look at what's referred to as the so-called exception clause. Um, we'll find this in a couple of places. Let's look at our, our key text here in a little bit, Matthew 5, 31 to 32. <coughs> And before we even evaluate this, I want to say that while carefully examining the original Greek text and the syntax can be helpful, and it is, it really can be helpful to determine some of these things, I'm going to take the approach, and I believe that we have enough here in God's Word as it's been preserved for us to see the truth, especially in context of what's written, and I trust that we'll see that as we read along Man can call it a divorce. Legal documents can nullify your previous con commitments, but in God's eyes, you're no more twain. So we read warnings back in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You say, the Lord said, but I have not said. And we also read things like, you think, I think like you. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. We can read in Psalm 50 and Isaiah 55. <clears throat> so, uh, brothers, one of you, uh, Matthew 5, 31, 32. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication, 
partner that is divorced committeth adultery. Okay. So this exception that we're looking at here is referring to the divorce. Simply put, um, analogies can be created. Um, we, 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 again, we can look at the Greek and do all sorts of interesting things here with this, but <clears throat> I think we'll see this more clearly as we go on. Just understand that this exception is referring to the divorce. Notice that he says here uh, six times, you heard that it's been said, but I say unto you. Let's think about it this way. If Jesus in here said, yeah, divorce and marriage is still fine. Well, why? But I say unto you. He was, he was putting something new here. <clears throat> we can even look at just verse 32. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So this is the innocent party. And if you marry her, you're committing adultery. So you can't even marry the innocent party if we just look at that sentence alone. We run into some roadblocks if we start to believe that we can just remarry. Um, so let's take a look at Matthew 19 again. And let's finish this up. We, we read the first portion. Um, let's read verses 7 through 10. If one of your brothers will read that, this will go along with what we just read in Matthew 5, 31, 32. They say unto him, Why didn't Moses then command to give a writing of, of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Thank you. Yeah, so we notice here, Jesus saying, From the beginning, it was not so. So same as Matthew 5.32, we see this, this exception. <clears throat> and this is referring to the divorce. So there is an exception made for divorce. Look at the, the framework of the question the Pharisees were asking about divorce. But there's nothing about remarriage here that allows or gives some permission. And Jesus strengthens the permanence of the one flesh union by adding, whoever marries a divorced wife commits adultery. Notice where Jesus would have ended his answer. The Pharisees asked him, if you look back up in Matthew 19, about divorcing for every cause. And, and he said, um, Where, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He was done. He answered it. Then they asked him, But why did Moses then? And notice the disciples' response in verse 10 that we read. If this is the case of the man with his wife, it's not good to marry. They clearly understood what Jesus was saying here. I don't even marry. This is serious. <clears throat> John the Baptist. There's a couple areas in Scripture we can read about. Matthew 14, 3 through 4, and Mark 6, 17 through 18. And I don't plan to read through that right now, but just you'll remember that John the Baptist lost his head over speaking out against this, this issue. 
and Herod and his brother Philip's wife. Notice how that's even referred to in those scriptures. His brother Philip's wife. <clears throat> I'm going to fast forward here into Paul's teaching. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 7 and we'll read verses 10 through 11 if whoever here uh, would, would have that first. 1 Corinthians 7 10 and 11. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let, her, and let not the husband put away his wife. Okay. So it's interesting here that Paul says, notice <clears throat> in verse 10, And of the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So where is Paul getting this from? So he's, he's showing you his understanding of Jesus' words here. But the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but, but, and if, but, and if, she depart, let her remain unmarried. <clears throat> Divorce is spoken against for both the husband and the wife. We can read further along there in verse 39, um, after some more discussion here that he has, he, he concludes that portion by saying, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if the, her husband be dead, she is at liberty to marry whom she will only in the Lord. So there's death that can separate, but not divorce. Romans chapter 7. Let's flip there again to another teaching from Paul. We'll look at verses 1 through 3. Again, if one of your brothers would be willing to read that. Um, know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over man as well as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Thank you. So again, Paul is talking about this same matter. He's using this for an example of something else. I think we understand Romans 7. He's, he's using this for an analogy of spiritual freedom but it was clear enough that he used it and the only permissible case of remarriage here is the death of the former spouse so if remarriage occurs while the original spouse is still living she'll be called an adulteress he says so we have Jesus teachings we have Paul's understanding of Jesus teachings I'm gonna quote some things now from the early church there's so many quotes um, I find this beneficial because they spoke the original language. If there's any confusion yet um, that you might have, or, or, or maybe um, if something wasn't quite clear in the scriptures that we read, it's helpful maybe to, to hear from those that spoke that language. Um, so I'll quote from a few. This is in the second and third century, Justin Martyr. And he says, Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced from another husband committeth adultery. And there are some who have been made eunuchs of men, and some who are born eunuchs, and some who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. 
but all cannot receive this saying, so that all who by human law are twice married are in the eye of our master sinners. He uses the word twice married. That's interesting. Twice married. I understand this to be almost like bigamy, um, as, as he stated this, twice married. Clement of Alexandria states it this way, He that taketh a woman that has been put away, it is said, committeth adultery. And if one puts away his wife, he makes her an adulteress. That is, he compels her to commit adultery. And not only is he who puts her away guilty of this, but he who takes her by giving to the woman the opportunity of sinning. For did he not take her, she would return to her husband. And then Tertullian he says, The Lord uttered in treating of divorce, which permitted formally, he now prohibits. First, because from the beginning it was not so, like plurality of marriage. Second, because what God hath conjoined, man shall not separate. For fear, namely, that he contravene the Lord, for he alone shall separate who has conjoined. Separate, moreover, not through the harshness of divorce, which harshness he censures and restrains, but through the debt of death. If, indeed, one of two sparrows falleth not on the ground without the Father's will, therefore, if those whom God has conjoined, man shall not separate by divorce, it is equally congruous that those whom God has separated by death, man is not to conjoin by marriage. The joining of the separation will be just as contrary to God's will as would have been the separation of the conjunction. Hopefully that's clear, but if it's not, Tertullian, in, in the style that he does, basically says, listen, it's like you trying to marry a corpse. You can't join what God separates, and the way he separates is by death. And, and Tertullian, if any of you know me well enough and Tertullian well enough, you'll know that he's one of my favorite authors. I just love how he makes these comparisons and analogies, but um, he makes it quite clear in this way. So there are other questions that come now from this. Would God separate a family? So we have these teachings, and now, now what do we do? Sometimes it's difficult when we process a young, happy family. There's maybe young, young children involved, and things are going well. You know, you picture the blue skies, the white picket fence, you know, and things like this. And now all of a sudden we come across a scripture like this, and, and now what do we do? And we can't sleep at night. And is, this, is God asking this of me? One example that, that I appreciate that helps clarify this a little bit, because divorce and remarriage is so common in our day, is the picture of a homosexual couple. If a homosexual couple to walk in our congregation, and it's pretty close to home here with some of our family, and they adopt children, what do we say of that? They may have adopted children. They can be legally married in some cases. Um, they would consider themselves a married couple with a family. The question is, would God? That's maybe a more clear example for us to say, well, that's wrong. But then so is adultery. So we shouldn't ask if it's right for man to separate what God has joined, but rather is it right for God to separate what man has joined? 
there's a scripture here. I'll, I'll read through this a little bit in Ezra 9, chapter 9 and chapter 10. But a really sad case when Israel took on wives. Maybe some of you brothers will remember this. So the, in Ezra 9, we read the people of Israel. They, um, the holy seed has mingled themselves with the people of those lands, they're saying. This is of the, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. And Ezra, he says, when, when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down. And he was just astonished. And he says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. In Ezra 10, we read, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. In verse 3, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as were born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. In verse 10, And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure. And separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. This is a slightly different scenario, yet the treatment and the grief is the same and the expectation is the same. And so I reference it for that, for that sake. In Luke 14, 26 we read, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 19, 12, as we referenced before, um, in the early church quotes there, for there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And so this refers then, I believe even this is Matthew 19, to those that would have to make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Paul shows us that it's not a burden to be single if we're called to a life of singleness, if that would be our, our lot. In 1 Corinthians 7, Further on in the passages we read in 32 and 33, he says, But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And so there might be some comfort in that for those that might be called to this. Um, I know of one who would attest to this. And as difficult as it is, he finds grace in that. And so we have... We have this next topic of support, as I've got it listed here. Support as congregations. This is a doctrine or a teaching we can't just wear in our sleeves. We have to put shoes on this. There are spiritual, emotional, financial, logistical matters to name a few. It can get really sticky. 
extremely complex, especially when you start getting in second, third, fourth marriages, children from various spouses. Sometimes we hardly even know who the father is. In some cases, that in the workplace, um, I was just speaking with someone out in, on the shop floor and 29 years married, and he divorced his wife, and I talked to him, is there any, is there any hope of getting back together? Is that a possibility? He would want to. He just doesn't see that she would, and he's dating somebody else. And There are so many cases like this, and my heart just breaks. You can see just the lost look in his eyes, something that defined him for all these years. And I asked him about that. I said, how do you feel after being married for that long? I mean, what, what's it like? And we have a bit of a relationship. And he said, I feel like I don't know what to live for anymore. Everything that defined me, he goes, it just seems like it's gone. She took half my money, and so now I have to work more, and I, I just, uh, I don't know what to live for. And it just breaks my heart. And so we can read verses like this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. We can read, and he said unto me, regarding Paul's thorn in the side, in the flesh there, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Okay, that's helpful. But I think that someone in this situation, then they go back home to maybe an empty home or maybe visiting their children for a time and back to their empty home or if they're really going to hold to this doctrine and, and separate themselves... It's going to take more than that, especially in some cases. James 2, 15 to 16. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? This is sandwiched in between the faith and works. You know, you'll be familiar with this discussion. And so we can have faith that grace is sufficient and, and, and all that, but are we willing then to, to come along and give those things that are needful? It may require some things of us that are uncomfortable and stretch us a little bit. And so Galatians 6.10 I have here, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, and especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And so just in closing here, I'll read back in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 30. Something to those that have made the sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. So that's my, my heart on this topic. Those are the teachings that I would offer to you brothers. There are plenty more. Um, there is a lot more detail we can go into. There are some very complex and challenging situations that we can think of and question and ponder and discuss and try to come up with conclusions to. But I want to at least put that much out there, brothers, maybe to help us along on this subject and this teaching of Jesus and put up marriage as Jesus put it up as being something so holy. Um, 
Brother Joel, would you have any closing thoughts or comments to share there? 